Okay, welcome along to the first in a series I'm doing, looking at the Wrestling Observer yearbooks. The uh, first one came out just over a year ago now, looking at uh, the year 1997. And I'm delighted to say, joining me uh, is the uh, editor of the Observer newsletter himself, Dave Meltzer. Dave, how's it going? It's going pretty good. How are you? Very well. So I'm, I'm talking to you on a slightly quieter weekend than, than last weekend. Uh, obviously, last weekend being yeah. WrestleMania weekend, and you weren't quite sure you'd be able to uh, to cope with all the stuff going on. How, how did you think you managed it in the end? It ended up fine. It always does. It, just, <laughs> um, it actually wasn't as bad as I expected it to be as far as just covering everything, I think. Um, luckily, after WrestleMania, there wasn't like a lot of big news after it was pretty much right. all that yeah. week so just catching up on that week and then you know i mean a little bit AEW on wednesday but um it wasn't um you know there weren't any well, i mean i don't know like there's there were stories you know but but like the nash carter story the tammy sitch story but they weren't there weren't a lot of them there were only a couple of them so it wasn't too bad so obviously the first yearbook was looking at 97 and uh, i suppose the the thing you get asked about the most, maybe not so much just 97 alone, but in general, is uh, the Montreal screw job. Uh, do you sure. think, is that the most asked thing, or would it be the Benoit tragedy? I mean, it is definitely the most as far... I mean, like, the Benoit would have been the most as far as the printed version of the newsletter, um, the most interest in any story ever, uh, with Montreal probably the second biggest, but as far as talk for decades and something that's been harped on forever, by far the biggest wrestling story in that sense, as far as an in-ring story, that is it. Um, you know, people have debated the thing. They've, uh, you know, history has been rewritten, attempted to be written many, many times as far as like what happened, why it happened and things like that. But yeah, definitely. You know, it's such a polarizing thing because you have, you know, you're going to have people who are going to argue both sides and, uh, you know, um, so, yeah, it, uh, you know, and, and, and now, you know, it's it's like it's weird because judging it now by today's standards, it seems so silly. But by then it was anything but silly, you know, because now it's like, uh, you know, everyone gets titles and titles are not a big deal. And so why would this be such a big deal? But back then it really were a big deal. So you have to kind of understand because like I've shown um, like the Wrestling with Shadows documentary to some friends of mine who are wrestlers who are much, much younger and didn't even know the story. And they just couldn't even understand, you know, both sides. They couldn't understand either side. Like, why is this such a big deal? You know, it's just, you know, like a fake wrestling championship. And it's like, well, back in 97, it was it was a real big deal. And Brett took it real serious. And Vince took it real serious. And, and that's, that was what happened. And I think people underestimated how important the fact it was in Canada as well to Brett. I mean, he, he took being not just a wrestler, but a Canadian wrestler, so seriously if it had happened in america well i don't think it would have happened in america it, would have, it, wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have happened in america um i don't think um no it wouldn't have it would it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been that issue now it's still they still might have had an issue with sean right um but he would but as far probably, as he would have probably dropped it to sean outside of canada or not would have, i mean i think so but it, it would have been it would have been tough because when sean disrespected him it was going to be very hard for him to lose. Now, I mean, as far as would he have lost to uh, Undertaker in the United States with yeah. no problem? Yes, 100% yes. Yeah, he would have. Um, 
they they had brought up him losing to Undertaker in Detroit, uh, leading into it, and he said, "Well, I've got the match with Sean. I don't want to dilute, which was the biggest WWE match of the year. I don't want to dilute that either." So he he wasn't going to lose it until after Montreal. I mean, that was the thing. He was going to go into Montreal's champion no matter what, and he had creative control, you know, for the last sixty days of his deal. So um, he could dictate that, and um, Vince they'd agreed to you know him dropping it in Springfield. And Vince didn't want to wait for Springfield, and this is what happened. And do you think that in any way Montreal takes away or overshadows what a great year 97 was for Bret Hart? I mean, Bret Hart, that was one of the best years he ever had, you know, 97. Maybe the best. um, From a national standpoint, I think it was the best because of the U.S.-Canada. It was really a landmark program. And also, that was the year that Steve Austin really got over, even though he got over bigger like the next year. Um, you know, it was really the, 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 the it was the, you well, know, Bret Hart, Steve 13. yeah, yeah. The, the Bret Hart, Steve Austin match really springboarded Steve Austin to a level of stardom that very, very few in wrestling history have ever reached. So that was a big part of it. And of course we had the, uh, WCW, WWF wars, the U S versus Canada feud in WWF, which was, you know, largely Bret's idea. So, yeah, there was a lot of um, really big monumental stuff. The formation of DX, you know, the Austin, the kicking off of Austin, the first full year of Dwayne Johnson's career. So in, in with, the, with the benefit of hindsight, 97 is one of the most pivotal years in uh, the last 40. Or, yeah, well, the last 35, I'd say, anyway, because, yeah, 84 was awfully pivotal, too, because it changed the whole nature of the business. But. You know, I would say since the mid mid to late 80s, 97 is probably, 97 and 2001 would probably be the most pivotal years. You brought up Austin there, and of course, he just had his first match in, in 19 years. Uh, if you can, Well, I suppose you can call it a match. It was, you know, it was certainly, it was... It was, uh, it was, it was, the bell rang, it was a match. It yeah. was a match, yeah, with, with, with Kevin Owens. Um, of course, at SummerSlam of that year, he gets dropped on his head in the match with Owen, and... You know, obviously he didn't, he he probably, is it fair to say he drew more money in a shorter period of time than anybody else? Yes, yes. Without a doubt. As far as, as, far as a short-term selling tickets, wrestling draw, more than Hogan, more than El Santo, more than Londos, you know, more than anyone in a short, as, as far as in a short window in the history of wrestling, yes. Now, it's a hypothetical question, but if he doesn't get dropped on his head, you know, we don't have the tombstone of doom, as you referred to it in The Observer at the time. If that doesn't happen, do you think he has anywhere near the longevity that Hogan had on top? No, because he was older. Um, right, yeah. And, and also, things, circumstances changed. So he wouldn't have the longevity of Hogan at the top, but he would have had far more long. If he hadn't gotten dropped on his head, he'd have far more longevity um and probably would have been um you know if you look at like the list of the biggest draws in history which is kind of a weird you know there's different ways to look at that list but he would certainly be higher all time with more time because yeah i think he would have you know probably gone you know he could have probably gone to his late 40s so you're talking about um you know early 2010s so i mean he's going to have um you know probably just about uh, a decade longer of a career, and and he would always be on top. Whether he, he probably wouldn't draw as he did at the peak, that was a real special time. But he would draw. He would still be like one of the biggest draws in wrestling. And uh, yeah, it definitely changed, um, you know, changed wrestling history in its own way with Austin. Uh, you know, not having that longevity. 
Do you think that Austin... Did it have to be Austin? Could, could it have been anybody else on the roster at the time? It had to be Austin. No, no. I mean, Dwayne was the second biggest star, but I think that Dwayne needed an Austin to be such a big star to pull him up to where he got to that level. Although Dwayne would have been a mega, mega star. Triple H would have been a big, big star. But the uh, neither of them would have been an uh, I mean, and Dwayne probably was in some ways, you know, almost at the same level of Austin. But I don't think he would have gotten as high without Austin being there. I don't think Undertaker would have gotten as high without Austin being there. I don't think Triple H would have gotten as high without Austin being there. I think that Austin elevated, uh, the, you know, Mick Foley. All of them became bigger stars because of Austin. You know, um, opening up uh, the Austin McMahon thing, opening it up, and, and but Austin was on fire before Vince McMahon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, obviously, ninety-seven. I mean, the subtitle of this yearbook was it was the last time that WWF uh, was number two. WCW towards the end of '97, it was still, yeah, you know, it was still going great. I mean, it still had you know doing really, really well in the ratings. Obviously, Goldberg was was keeping them very much competitive. Goldberg, into Goldberg, Goldberg was really '98. Yeah, I was going to say he, Goldberg sort of kept them competitive in '98 until they yes, they screwed that right. up. But uh, yeah. how sort of detrimental was that Starcade finish in '97 with, with Sting and Sting and Hogan? Okay, so it was really detrimental for sure, but. In the long run, would that have changed things? Um, had it been done better? I don't know, because the same mistakes were still going to be made afterwards. Um, but, yes, yeah, things should have won clean. I think we all know that. And um, But the thing is, is that they were still going to build everything around Hogan, even if Sting won. And then Sting would have come across sort of secondary, kind of like Bill did it, you know, after Bill beat Hogan. And then everything's still built around Hogan, and Bill becomes sort of secondary. And that's where Bill starts, you know, like tailing off a little bit. So I think that the same would have happened to Sting, um, you know, and it did happen to Sting, but it would have happened less quickly had they done it better, but it still would have happened. So I think that in the long run, you know, where it goes to the companies, you know, losing millions and millions of dollars in 2000, I think that happens either way. So do you think that um, this was a case of Hogan being, in some respects, the biggest issue that WCW had. I mean, they, they had lots of issues, but he was him. If he didn't come in in '94, I, I don't think they would have been as successful as they ended up becoming. No, but, without a doubt. Without, without toward, a doubt, he, he turned he turned the pay per view business around, yeah. and then and then with the NWO, he turned everything around. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was very much like Hogan. Hogan had to be the guy in '94 to 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 change the direction of WCW. But towards the end, he became more of a more of a hindrance than a help to the company. Would you say? I would say he's more of a liability at the end, just because everything. But everyone was, you know, they right. just had they had lost it. I mean, the thing is, the product they were presenting was a product the public didn't want to see, and that wasn't necessarily Hogan. That was just the whole mentality of whoever was in charge didn't have their fingers on the pulse of the the public at all, like 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 I've never seen before, and that was what what drove them down. Um, but Hogan, you know, in a sense, like everyone's got their shelf life and. Hogan hit his, you know, for the most part. I mean, he did have the one nostalgia run in 2002, and then, you know, you could bring him back every couple of years and get a, a short nostalgia pop because he's Hulk Hogan. But as far as the guy there week to week carrying the company, you, you, you know what I mean? There comes a point where you have to pass the torch, and he didn't do it, and they didn't have anyone prepared because their mentality always was, I mean, I remember Eric used to tell me, where Hogan goes, goes the money. And it's like, well, for years that was true. But nothing is forever, and Austin wouldn't have been forever either. You know, there would have come, 
there would come a point where Austin, you know, like I say, Austin never got hurt. You know, there'd come a time when Austin's in his late forties where, you know, or, or even before that, where Austin needed to, to pass the torch to the next guy, whether it was Brock Lesnar or, or whoever, you know what I mean? It, because, because nothing lasts forever in wrestling, you know, and when you keep going with the pat hand for too long, you're going to go down because it's, there's nothing new. Why do you think the, the WCW-NWO split that was talked about never happened? What, what, what was the biggest reason that never happened? I just remember that they did that... Uh, Sold they out. Did a, they did this pay-per-view that was terrible, and they also did the one show where they did the one hour that was all NWO, and I just remember that the ratings in that hour just nosedived, like scary bad. And then it was kind of like that was a sign from God that like it isn't NWO itself, but it's the NWO needs... The foils and without the foils and it's all nwo with no foils you really don't have anything that people are interested in so i think that that's where it was yeah because at one point yeah they were going to try to do an nwo television show and market it as two different companies and things like that and um yeah they gave up on that really fast well the idea was to make wbf the third brand i mean or the third company they'd already become right, right. number one and, and they wanted they wanted wbf to be number three they they, they really i mean eric Egan must have been totally out of control at that point well, he was having a lot of success, so that's what happens. You know, I mean, everything he touched, not everything was perfect or anything like that, but, but he was on a real run. And and so that's what happens when you're on a real run. And it, then when things go down, you, then you start, like, it becomes really difficult. And I think it was for Eric. You could, I think you could see it in the TV in 98 when, when they were going down. That it was just like, the more they were like a snowball, you know what I mean, running downhill. And it was just like, how do you, how do you get a snowball back up to the top of the hill? <laughs> I mean, I remember living through it going like the snowball is going down the hill. And it's like, I know it's not impossible because I've seen companies come from depths to turn it around before, including, you know, WCW, which in like 91, 92, 93 was just oh, yeah. was just like on death's door. They had they, they had lost their fan base when Flair left and even before, you know, not just Flair, but they just they had no real fan base. And then, you know, in 95 you know, Hogan coming in and then Flair and Savage having their program started things going. And then, you know, NWO just accelerated that. And the snowball was, you know, I mean, they turned everything around and then the snowball started rolling back down the hill and they didn't have a, a new Hulk Hogan, you know what I mean? To, to stop it and turn it around. And, yeah, because you know, it... Flair and Savage and Piper and all those guys, they were now old. You know, when they came in, they were fresh. They were older. But then after a while, it, it was kind of like their time was up and they had nobody to replace them. And, and, you know, whether Jericho and these guys could have been those guys, we'll never know. But you have to go in with the idea that someone's going to have to be at some point. And when they went in, with, they never had that idea. Their idea was where Hogan goes, goes the money. And, um, you know, Hogan was going to get old and that was no longer going to be the case. And it wasn't, you know, it, it, Hogan Hogan's role was surpassed by... Steve Austin and, and Dwayne and, and Bill Goldberg, but they didn't have the faith to go really with Bill Goldberg as much as like they, they didn't beat him, but they, he was not on the main event on every pay-per-view either. You know, it was a lot of Hogan, you know, Hogan was in the main event or Hogan was manipulating behind the scenes to uh, be back on top, you know, taking, you know, planned hiatuses to come back stronger, but it was all about, you know, everything was still all about Hogan. No, absolutely, yeah. Just to sort of change gears completely here now, um, I want to bring up 
Brian Pillman. I, I know you knew Brian pretty well. Um, do you think now he would have been great in this era, with, you know, the social media era? He would have used that so well, I think, wouldn't he? I think so. I think he'd have been. Um, I think he would have had a lot of criticism, um, much more than he got. And I think that he would have been more bombastic and uh, more controversial. And but I think that he would have been a real superstar right now. Yeah, yeah, because he would have figured out the he'd have figured out the social media way to do it, and um, would have you know gotten people mad at him a lot. But he would have had he he you know he'd have been like um, and he wouldn't have been as big because because no one could be. But I think he would have ended up like Conor McGregor, where every time he did a tweet, everybody, what did Conor McGregor say? Even if it's stupid or whatever. It's just like, what did you, I think Brian would have been that guy more than anybody else because he would have said outlandish things, but he probably would have said some smart things too. And and I think that he would have been like that guy where, what did Brian say? I I do think that would have happened. Yeah. Would you say that he was ahead of his time in some respects? Uh, yes, in many, many ways. I think he was uh, he was way ahead of his time. If he hadn't gotten hurt, I think he would have had a hell of a run with WWF or with WCW. But it probably would have been with WCW, honestly. Um, and I think, but with WCW, the problem was, you know, because I wouldn't, I, you know, I was very much wanting Brian to go to WWF at the time because I just felt he needed a clean place. And WWF had, you know, at that time, it was before Austin really took fire, you know, got on fire. I thought that there was like, uh, a spot for anyone to be near the top. And if he had been healthy, I think that he would have been right there. Not not at Austin, because that's not a fair comparison, but I think he would have been an opponent of Austin and one of his best opponents just because of their past and because of the fact he could go, you know, a real high level and and everything. And I think he would have been, you know, like a um, maybe a Mick Foley level, maybe even slightly higher, but, but in that range of a star, you know, real big, big star. Um and if he was in WCW like he wanted to be, I mean, the problem with the WCW is he still, no matter what, he would have still been having to, to follow Hogan. And then you had, you know, all the Hogan friends. And then, you know, you, you know, the, just the whole situation. I think it would have been, it would have been harder, but it was the one he wanted to be. He wanted to just, he wanted to be at the Lex Luger level in, in WCW. He'd have been very, very happy to be there. And uh, perhaps he would have gotten there, um, you know, had he not had the Humvee wreck. Well, wasn't it the um, was it a, uh, a uh, war games match that Hogan wanted Pillman to be in so he could beat him? Is that was well, that it was, was it was, uh, was it war games? Uh, was it? It was it was like a triple decker of something. Oh, or other... the, yeah, the triple cage of doom or something, wasn't it? Yeah, something yeah, like with Jeep Swenson and I think <laughs> Zeus and all those guys were being brought back, and um, yeah, it was a two on eight, and I think that you know Hogan and Savage against like all these heels, and I know Hogan wanted Brian in there too to beat him, and Brian decided to have a throat surgery which um he did need but he didn't need to do it then (laughs) i remember he did that and kevin sullivan was like so mad because i I just remember him you know like he didn't really need the surgery then and it's kind of like well he got the surgery he's not cleared but he absolutely got the surgery at that time when he got wind that hogan wanted to beat him so it was just kind of like yeah you know he was always trying to manipulate the system but had he lived, I think you're absolutely right, because Austin obviously was good friends with him. I think he would have quite gladly worked with a program with, with, with Brian. You know, oh, for sure. He didn't for want sure. to work he with Jarrett, obviously, for, because of their history, but he would have been quite happily worked with uh, with Brian. Well, he did the angle with Brian with the gun and everything, but they just couldn't go further with it because, you know, Brian was so limited in the ring. Right. That yeah. was the problem at that point. If Brian could still go, like, 
back a year or two earlier. Um, and they, yeah, they were friends. I mean, they were, they were friends when they did that angle because I remember, um, the day after, you know, Brian's calling me up and Austin, I don't remember if Austin's patched in or they're actually together, but I didn't speak a word to Austin, but he's there and I'm speaking to Brian and we're going through the ratings of that, uh, the gun show. And they were disappointed because I think they were really hoping for like this giant rating and it didn't happen actually. And then Vince had to apologize right afterwards. But, you know, in the long run, I mean, it was part of the story of Austin getting to another level. And Brian would have, too, had he, had he, could, had he been able to wrestle. Shifting gears again here. One thing that, you know, when I was putting together a list of things I wanted to talk to you about, I thought, what's the one What's one thing that Dave would not be expecting me to bring up? And uh, I'm going to ask you about Todd Gordon believe it or not. Uh (laughs) Because obviously ECW had a very important year in 97. That's also the year that Todd Gordon departs the company. Yes. Uh, How, tell us about Todd Gordon, for those who don't know, how pivotal was he to ECW? Well, he was the guy who started it. It was his baby. Um, Eastern Championship Wrestling, he was just doing, he wanted to do an independent. Um, You know, Joe Goodhart was a guy who actually started and he would bring in all of these, you know, international stars and, and old favorites and things like that and do these shows. And, you know, he lost, they lost money every time, but they did draw pretty decently for, you know, an independent thing. And then Joe Goodhart gave up. And so Todd Gordon started a company and uh, got local TV. And Eddie Gilbert was the booker. And Eddie Gilbert was losing his mind at the time. And uh, Paul Heyman was brought in. And Paul ended up as the booker. And Paul... At that point in time, um, you know, Paul was a creative genius. And, you know, so they built that thing up. And then, uh, you know, they were co-owners. Paul, I guess, like, you know, Paul's family uh, brought, you know, bought in or however however that worked where, you know, they were co-owners. And then um, they got information that, that Todd was trying to go to WCW and do an invasion angle and bring a lot of the ECW talent in, which I'm sure was going on. And I'm sure Paul would find out because Paul had friends everywhere. And, uh, you know, he kind of had the proof and that was the end of Todd Gordon in the company. Yeah. Because even when you see like ECW documentaries, I, I don't remember him being brought up all that much. You know, like the rise of fall and, and all of that. So he's, he's kind of like a forgotten part of their, of their history. He was, huge. he was huge. I mean, he's the guy who hired Paul. Exactly. He's the yeah, guy who yeah. went along with Paul's vision. Um, you know, he's the guy who lost the money early on when they were having to build this thing up from nothing. And I mean, the company was never a moneymaker. So, um, yeah, I mean, Paul was, I mean, um, you know, Todd was very similar to Kerry Silken, but more hands-on and more, um, Kerry's more low-key. And Todd was anything but low-key. You know, Todd loved being, you know, part of that scene. Um, you know, um, he was like a, a jeweler, you know, from a you know, famous jewelry store in, in uh, you know, for, for 100 years or more in Philadelphia who, you know, dabbled in running a wrestling company that was really one of the most pivotal. Because, you know, the, the boom period of wrestling in the United States, you know, with WCW and WWF, you know, if you're going to say the years were, let's say, 97 to 2001, most, I don't say most, but, but, a large percentage, maybe even most of the stuff that really got wrestling going, including Austin and everything was kind of the brainchild of taking what had worked in ECW and bring it to the national audience. 
without that, does any of this boom period happen? And I'm pretty sure the answer is no. Um, you know, you can never say because there's always these influences and things that would happen. There still would have been a Monday Night War and everything without it. But as far as the ideas that both of these companies were using to fight each other, they were ideas out of ECW. So I think that, like, you know, ECW's relevance or part in history um, is very, very big. You know, you know, maybe bigger than most people like kind of today would say. Of course, 97 is the year that Raw becomes a two-hour show. And uh, Lewis asked me to ask you, a week after the Royal Rumble, they did a pay-per-view from the Toronto Skydome, billed it as Royal Rumble Raw. Uh, there was about 25,000 uh, in attendance, but it wasn't the usual Raw production values in terms of lights, cameras, or set. Looked like they looked like they were there to film a house show for TV. Was this an impromptu recording, and do you have any story behind that first two-hour roar? You know, I don't really remember it like, specifically. Um, there were episodes of Raw where they, you know, the company was losing money at the time, and so they were cutting back in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, that wasn't the only Raw. There were some Raws with, like, very weak production value that, um, you know, and, and it's and at one point, I think that the reality set in that, like, if we do this, we're going to lose in the ratings to their good production value. I think that was the period where we really learned, you know, that period and that in the last year or two where we learned how important production value is, is to the success of a show, um, because it really is. I mean, like you look at WWF when they were in that uh, Capitol Wrestling Center, you know, the last, you know, during the pandemic. And I mean, their ratings were nosediving and they, you know kind of calmed it down with the Thunderdome and then really, you know, um, you know, the, the, the decline really was abated greatly when they could bring fans back and it could be the old raw. I mean, you need, you need that atmosphere, um, to really make it in wrestling now, you know, more than, more than great matches, more than even great personalities is you need that atmosphere. But look, how much do you wish raw was still two hours long every Monday? Oh man, it'd be, <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things where, I mean, I knew when they went to three that it was going to be a slow decline in popularity because you're going to run people off and that's what happened. Um, but they made so much money off hour three that like from a business standpoint, I mean, you can't say it's the wrong call, but it is, it was the call that led to a slow erosion of, uh, you know, of the audience without doubt. Now, 97 is a big year for the UFC as well. And uh, in the uh, fight game group recently, we did a, uh, a thing called the Mount Rushmore of UFC. And I just wondered if you would like to guess who you thought people would choose as the Mount Rushmore. Because, uh, you know, Garrett uh, put in his four choices and Paul Fontaine and people who know what they're talking about. So any guesses as to who might have been up there? With the, for the Mount Rushmore in 1997? Oh, no, just in general, just in general of UFC history. The history of UFC. In fact, you want me to pick four guys? Well, the, the, you can guess the four guys you think would have been up there. Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, Chuck Liddell. Um, That's really interesting because you've not mentioned the guy who was the runaway winner. Who? More people said uh, GSP than anybody else. Oh, GSP, yeah. GSP and then maybe, you know, John Jones too. No, I, I, no, no, I was talking about this. You're talking about like all time great. I was all talking time, about yeah. most. I was talking about most influential. Oh, okay. Um, I think because, people um, just look at Mount Rushmore differently when they're when they're making their choices. Uh, if you're something. talking about the great, the greatest fighters, um, John Jones, GSP, 
probably Anderson Silva. And, um, man, I don't know who the fourth would well, yeah, be. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you, GS, GSP got more votes than anybody else. Um, Anderson yeah. Silva was second. Uh, mm. Royce Gracie came third, just, uh, just because I think of his his importance to the company, I think, more than anything. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I could say, I, I think Ken Shamrock was actually more important than Royce Gracie. Um, um, not at the beginning, but historically, um, as far as, you know, bringing the company back and, and him and Tito, the, him and, the, I think the, the most important feud uh, was him and Tito. It wasn't the biggest, but it was the most was important. important. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and for the fourth, I mean, it was a tie between Ronda and Connor. And uh, we, we we put a poll up, and it ended up being Ronda that got that, that got that. Well, Ronda, Ronda 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 was more influential than I mean, Connor drew the most money of anybody by far, but Ronda was more influential in the sense that, like, you know, do you have, have a man that is without Ronda Rousey? No, you don't even have women's division, and now exactly, you have yeah. multiple women's fights and an entire you know sport of women fighters, and that doesn't exist without Ronda Rousey. Whereas with Connor, um, Connor helped them internationally, you know, without a doubt. But um, and drew more money than any fighter ever, and um, you know, very very important. But um, yeah, I would say, um, you know, as far as like changing the game, importance Ronda might be number one. I mean, George was really big because he really brought Canada in, but it didn't stay when George left. So it wasn't like a you know. Whereas Ronda's long gone, and these women fighters on every show, so her influence is there every single week. How big was '97 for UFC? I mean, in the when you in the in the, you know, the grand scheme of things, when you look back, I mean, how pivotal a year was it for the company? Well, I mean, ninety six, ninety seven, when you had the companies just pulling out. Yeah, I mean, it took it from, you know, in ninety six, you still had the idea that this thing is going to be really viable and going to be like a, you know, not what it is now, but like a, a regular pay per view attraction that's going to draw really big. And by the end of ninety seven, it was like, uh, you know, like oh man, this thing is. You know, all the cable companies, you know, you know, pulled out of it. And it's kind of like this is going nowhere. You know, and, and it, it was it was interesting because it really was in many ways, you know, to the owners of UFC at the time, very unfair because they built this company to be popular at a certain level. And it was taken away, not because they had, you know, like with WCW where they just did terrible booking and they ran off their audience. This was people decided to stop showing it due to pressure from John McCain and basically almost put them out of business. And, and if you know, it wasn't for, if it wasn't for Lorenzo Fertitta being taught and, and Frank Fertitta being talked by Dana White into buying the thing. Um, I think UFC would exist and, and uh, probably Dan Lambert would be the owner and they, you know, but MMA would never be like, it, it just be some, you know, regional thing. And maybe it'd be on sports networks at some point, but it would be like a, It'd be like a nothing, you know what I mean? It'd be like lacrosse or something, you know what I mean? It sport that exists, but nobody really would pay attention to it. But um, yeah, when uh, Lorenzo came into the picture and they were very, very aggressive, um, you know, I mean, they they you know, look, they made it, they made it gigantic. And would you say that now it's probably as big as it's ever been? I mean, it, to to me now, it, it feels like it's more the brand that's that's popular than any sort of individual fighter, really. Yeah, it's unbelievable the way they sell tickets, you know, selling out at all these shows every, you know, every time out. In that sense, yeah, it's the most popular. And on pay-per-view, it's the most popular. On TV, it's not. Um, I think that it was more popular on TV uh, years ago. 
um, when they were on Fox and they would get the regular Fox specials. I don't know how much time you, you've, you've got, Dave. I don't want to keep you uh, longer than I need to, but um, I want to just quickly bring up Big Daddy because <laughs> Big Big Daddy passed away in 97. And, uh, of course, being from the UK, I mean, he was a household name. Uh, you know, him and, and, and Giant Haystacks and all those guys uh, were huge household names here in the UK. And um, is there, I mean... <sighs> It's, it's difficult to explain to anyone that's not seen him why he was successful because he just wasn't very good at all, was he, in the ring? He, he, didn't <laughs> no, he, was, ter- he was terrible in the ring. And, and I mean, I remember, you know, the funny thing with Big Daddy was is because, you know, his heyday was like, say, uh, 80-ish, right? 1989, 80, 81. You know, he's, he's kind of on the rise, 77, 78, 79, maybe peaking in 80 with the John Quinn. And then, you know, the, the Haystacks matchups, I think is 81. And then it's kind of like down. Um, but what, I, I mean, I remember because we would get, um, you know, well, we would sport. get in our magazines, we would get UK, you know, UK, the UK correspondent talking about, and boy, did they say how, like, this is going to ruin, like, this, this is going to lead to a big decline in wrestling. While it was going up, it was very interesting to read that, that the, the you know, British wrestling writers were like, this is going to lead to a big decline. And in fact, it did lead to a big decline. So it's kind of like how I remember how it was viewed in the time very closely. Like, this is really, really big. But, you know, there's going to be no longevity because and the real the real negative was the, the Haystacks match, because it was like, OK, you know, we had this biggest match. Everyone was talking about it. The match was terrible. And now what do you now what do you follow it up with? And they really. They never did follow anything up with that, you know, because you couldn't, you know, big, that was Big Daddy's big moment. And, um, you know, they I mean, I remember watching that match and just going like, wow, I mean, for, for something built up so big and, and very, very heated. It was like, man, it, it's like, you know, what was ever was like a minute match, you know. <laughs> Well, they couldn't do any more than that. I mean, it's uh, that's all they that's all they could do. But I mean, the UK wrestling scene now. I mean, it, it's really hot right now, isn't it? I mean, it, it seems to me to be uh, uh, really thriving. I thought UK was really big a couple of years ago when they had all the independents doing well, and then WWE I think really curtailed that a lot. Right, and then yeah. um, maybe because of the pandemic, maybe there's like a a, a renewed thing. Because I remember those the last couple of WWE tours before the pandemic were not doing well. Like they were the lowest that I ever recalled. Um, and then like, you didn't have like, you know, you had a lot of these indies that were, you know, doing very, very well. And now it's like, you've got the indies, but they're not as hot as they used to be in WWE. I think because they were gone for so long, I think that they're a little bit up from where they were a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, the NXT touring and AW, I'm sure first time they go, will do great. You know, it's obviously been very difficult to go because I haven't gone yet. And I mean, I you know, Tony, Tony's kind of almost like England's almost like the home away from home. He's been wanting to run London yeah. for years. But well, um, but do you think just, he'll? Do you think he'll put a show on at, at Craven Cottage, which obviously, obviously is the home of Fulham, which he also owns? So he's been talking about that for for years. I think. I, I mean, I I think it will happen at some point. Um, I think that if it wasn't for the pandemic, I think that it would have happened in 2020. But now it's 2022, and I mean, hey, I'm still looking for the first show in San Francisco and Toronto. So um, it's it's I don't know, but I mean, I mean, he's talked about it forever. I know he really wants to do it. I know we all know it that 
the first time they go there, it's going to be a huge success. So it's kind of like, I think that when you do it, you know, make it as big as possible. Um, I mean, that'd be a good thing to, to go to and try to make it a, a big show, you know, and everything like that. It's so, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, the pandemic definitely changed everything, uh, you know, delayed everything. Final question. Obviously, this is, uh, as I said earlier, this book was subtitled the last time WF was was number two. You probably know what I'm going to say now, but do you foresee any point in the near future where they could be number two again? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it depends on because I think future. I think AEW. If we, if, if, sorry, if we sorry, go on. if we say, if we say one year from now, I would say no. But five if years say, from now. 20 years from now, I say, of course, things can happen in 20 years unforeseen. I mean, I'm not predicting it, but I'm saying it absolutely could happen. Um, you know, there's years change and things change, and there's companies that you think could never go down that go down. Um, but I don't think short-term, no. I mean, I don't think AEW is going to get... It would take many, many years, but she's, you know, I mean, I remember... It's like the question that I remember in 2005 when UFC was starting to get really hot, and people were like, you know, how long do you think before UFC overtakes boxing? I go, it'll never, I remember telling people, it'll never happen. And a year later, they already had. Um, now, you know, there's no, um, AEW is not on fire like UFC was, you know what I mean? Where they're going out there and they're doing 500,000 and 700,000 buys on pay-per-view. You know, we're not, we're not anywhere near that type of a thing. So, um, and I don't know that you could do that in pro wrestling right now. Um, you know, um, so I, it would be very, very difficult, and I don't think AEW's goal should be to... I mean, their goal should be to beat WWE, of course, but I don't think that's a realistic short-term goal. Uh, Long-term, you know, Tony's younger than Vince, and Tony's got his philosophy, and Tony's got money and all that. Um, I don't say that it could never happen, but I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen in a, in, in a this short period of time, put it that way. But do you think AEW's already done better in the last three years than you were expecting them to, especially with the pandemic. I mean, that that could have really been detrimental. And it, it seems that obviously it had an effect on everyone, but AEW seems to have come out of it fairly unscathed. I mean, they, they still have, they've built up a they pretty were, they, a pretty good audience now, haven't they? Yeah, they um, they were certainly hurt a lot. Well, everyone was. It, it, was, it was at a, a try, you know, they were about to really, uh, I think, hit their stride when everything got pulled away. Um. But, you know, now, yeah, I think that they kind of, um, they're kind of out of that now. Um, yeah, I mean, like, when they started, you just never know. You know what I mean? I mean, I think that, I think that they've exceeded most people's predictions by a great deal. I think most people I know in wrestling did not expect them to even be around at this point. Um, they kind of thought, some people thought they were going to die right away. Some people thought, okay, they'll, you know, they'll do okay for a, a couple of months and they'll, draw the first time in every city, but then they won't draw ever again. And none of that happened. Um, you know, they ended up, you know, you know, they've, they've grown and everything like that. Um, um, you know, sometimes I watch and I go like, ah, they're putting out such a good product. They should grow faster. But, you know, it really just doesn't work that way, you know, and it's not just good matches and good product. That's not what's going to do it. It's going to be, you know, the big star and and we don't have a whole you know like that's the one thing wcw did is they had a hulk hogan they had a randy savage those guys were you know and, and others that were around um rick flair you know from another generation and we don't really have like that level of guys because we didn't have we weren't coming off of that 
80s boom and we're not coming off of that 90s boom you know it's like it's like the guys that would be those guys would be austin you know and he just came back and everything like that i'm sure if austin went to AEW and was an active wrestler i could do stuff still you know that maybe that would have been and he was 10 years younger yeah you know but we did you know we we you know the generation after you know they were not as big as stars punk was like you know punk and cena were like really big Cena's never going to do it um Cena would have been like Cena could have been. I mean, he could have been a Hogan though, but I mean, Cena could have been a big difference maker, but it wasn't going to happen. And they got Punk, who was a big difference maker. Um, but um, you know, Punk, CM Punk on his own is not worth a Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper, you know, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, all by them, you know, all by himself. Not even close. Well, I, I've heard you make the joke recently that they they bring in you know Brian Danielson and, and people could just immediately forget that he was losing to you know Drew Gulak and and uh, getting squashed by Roman Reigns on his way out of WWE and he's a, he's a new guy now in, in in AEW so I mean yeah I mean and like I say Jericho it was a bigger deal in AEW than he was towards the end of his WWE run so yeah I mean that they are they have taken guys from WWE and, and they seem to mean more in AEW than they did perhaps in, in WWE. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, I don't think that there's certainly any, John Moxley as well. John Moxley for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in, in, um, as you know, as far as going forward, there's going to be more guys to go, but I don't know that any of them, I, I, I think maybe, you know, like put this way, there's no one that they're going to get. I believe who was going to have the impact that Punk had, as far as really jump. Well, no, because the guys, like you said, the guys that would that, that uh, could do it won't do it. Like like Cena, you know, or Brock when Brock's contract came up. I mean, he, he could have gone there, but I mean, that was never really a possibility, was it? No, no, no. He wasn't going to go, and they weren't. You know, financially, the one thing is 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 like in the '97 era when we're talking, um, Time Warner was so much bigger of a company than WWE. You know, in the sense that they could afford to pay, you know, Hulk Hogan way more than he was going to make in WWE and Randy Savage way more than he was going to make in WWE and Nash and these guys way more. And this isn't really the case now. Now the guys who are going are guys who are unhappy in WWE and are artists who like creative freedom and, you know, they could get comparable money, but it's not like it's it's going to be like Brett you know, going from 1.5 million to 2.8 million, you know, you know, like, like if Tony was going to do that, you know, if he, if he was going to do that, you know, and like double everyone's money, I mean, he would get everyone, you know, once their contracts were up, but he's not doing that. I mean, he could do that and lose just an incredible amount of money, but he is trying to do a business to break even as opposed to go to war and spend incredible amounts of money and lose incredible amounts of money on the guise of eventually beating WWE um, so that's kind of it. I mean, if, if he had the mentality that, you know, the people who backed WCW from Bischoff had once they got Hogan, you know, but, you know, it was a much more vulnerable WWF then. This WWF is not is not that vulnerable. So it's it's to beat that, this WWE, even if some people go, well, it's not as popular, but financially it's so strong. And it wasn't back then. It wasn't strong at all. It was losing money, even without the WCW thing. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, WWF, WWF started going down in 92, you know, I mean, and, and um, you know, they were losing money a lot from 92 until like what it was like the end of 97 when they started making money again. 
Yeah, I, th- I think obviously WBF back then lived and died by the ratings and, and by pay-per-view revenue. And, and now, nowadays, that's not really as important. Not to say it's not important at all, but certainly the pay-per-view business is, is no longer relevant at all with the network you know, or a, yeah. a peacock, obviously, uh, in, in the States. We still have the uh, traditional network here in the UK. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a whole different landscape now. So uh, they're going to be making money hand over fist, aren't they, without really necessarily no having to put what, out a no good matter, product? No, no, back then in 97, they had to compete. Everyone had to compete for the best product every week and, um, you know, made for a very exciting time. Now it's kind of like it doesn't matter who has the best product because the money's all guaranteed. You know, yes, you're still competing for ratings, but, you know, again, with – you know, I mean, people forget that when it came to just TV ratings, that, that WCW was not far behind WWF. They were competitive already. They were before the Monday Night Wars. There were years where, where because of the TBS number, where um, you know WCW had better ratings than WWF, even though WWF sold more tickets and you know was much bigger company and did bigger pay per view numbers. Um, I mean, I remember when when Herd took over. And it was like, um, you know, it's 91 and you think of WCW just being way, way, way down. But because the Saturday TBS show was an institution, I remember we were talking about it. It was like, you know, they beat us everywhere but kids. So we got to go get, you know, we got to get the kids audience. That was their thing, which they never could get. But um, that was what they were looking. You know, that's why they draw, you know, more people at the gate and things like that than us. Because they have the kid kids audience. We have the adults audience. So they were had the adults audience, which is like. Today, if you have the adults audience, um, you know, you're considered that's that's gold, you know, because it's all about TV ratings. Back then, TV ratings, nobody really even talked about them because you didn't make any money. TV was was where you spent the money to make the money everywhere else, which was in your pay-per-views and your house shows and your merchandise. And now TV is the money and the pay-per-views and the house shows and the merchandise are just kind of there and something that you do because it's traditional and because you can make some money. But it's like who sells if AEW sells more merchandise, you know, at a, at a show than WWF, it's it's not going to change the balance of power. You know what I mean? Whereas back then, that was part of like the balance of power. Yeah, and of course, uh, Jim Hurd. That's why Jim Hurd brought in the Ding Dongs, and you know, had we had characters like Iraq the Man, and and uh, you know, because that was trying to get the kids' audience back in back in nineteen nineteen ninety one. It it didn't work, but that was the mentality. Big Josh with the dancing right, bears, yeah. and yeah, all those characters. That was you know, that was. Jim, Jim Hurd thought we needed to go more in a cartoon route. And unfortunately, the audience of WCW didn't want to be WWF. That's why they were WCW fans. So he kind of alienated the, the existing audience by trying to, you know, reach a new audience. And that's that's always going to happen. I mean, Jim Cornette did the same thing with Ring of Honor of trying to, you know, it didn't really work. But the idea of reaching the old fans um, because the audience that they were getting is too small, but in, instead he just alienated the current fans and never did reach those those old fans. Um, it's hard when you try to, you know, like if Tony's out there and I'm just trying to do a product, I, we've got to reach those women because WWF so far ahead in women or WWE. Um, you know, if he does that and just goes with this mentality of how do I appeal to women as his number one priority, uh, he'll lose the men. So, I mean, it's right. like, yeah, you yeah. do. Of course you want more women. But your bread and butter is the men. Yeah, you don't want to overcompensate trying to appease the uh, female viewers by then turning off menless male viewers as well at the same time. Right. Uh, but right. Um, we've got yearbooks to talk about. Ninety three, 
99 and 2014, I think, are the other three that have, that have come out. Any, any plans to uh, release any more? I think so. I mean, we haven't really discussed. Um, I know that there's been some talk of trying to do something for in the 80s. Well, 84 would be a good year, wouldn't it, to, to cover? 84 would be a really good year. 84, 87, yeah, 89. Um, and then, uh, you know, also um, some of the other years. But, yeah, we definitely talked about the 80s. Uh, but that's also a long time ago. But uh, it'd be, you know, uh, interesting for sure. Well, I look forward to uh, talking to you again. I think 93 was the next one on the list. So hopefully, hopefully it won't take quite as long to arrange it. But obviously, you're, you're a very busy man. So I, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to, uh, to talk to me today. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate it. No, I really enjoyed it. So uh, for Dave, I'm David signing off. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening.